experience failure, setbacks, disappointments, and obstacles. All these things are mandatory, and yes, they hurt. But it's also okay that they hurt. You're human, after all. Rejection, failure, and letdowns hurt humans. It's okay. It's part of the deal. You will get knocked down, repeatedly. The difference is in how long you take to get back up. I used to be far more sensitive to failure, but worked hard to reduce my recovery time, to stand up taller sooner. Here's the evolution I have gone through and recommend for you. What used to bum me out for two weeks, I eventually whittled down to two days by focusing my attention not on the failure, but on the lessons learned and the opportunities created. Then I got it down to two hours and then 20 minutes. Now when I get knocked down, I give myself about two minutes to sulk. Then I brush myself off and get back up on the horse. I have found that it is precisely in those moments of strife, struggle, and failure when you've been knocked flat on your tush and you're staring up wondering what to do next that the true achievers are born. Martin Luther King Jr. put it this way, The ultimate measure of a man is not where he stands in moments of comfort and convenience, but where he stands at times of challenge. It is only when we are face-to-face with those challenges, only when we are knocked down, that we can choose to separate ourselves from other men and women, from those who stay on their backs and melt into the herd of mediocrity, and instead join those who, despite the fear, pain, and struggle, get back up off the mat before the 10 count and eventually win. Speaking of win, Steve Wynn, as you know, is a multi-billionaire and business magnate, deemed Mr. Las Vegas by many. He played a pivotal role in the 1990 resurgence and expansion of the Las Vegas Strip. He built or refurbished the Mirage, Treasure Island, Bellagio, Wynn, Encore, and others. Wynn asked the best piece of advice he'd give a budding entrepreneur, his answer was, No, there will be dark days. There will be more dark days than good days. But the few good days are really, really good. You will get knocked down. Know that it's okay. It's okay that it hurts a bit, too. And know that it's okay to give yourself some recovery time. As Confucius said, our greatest glory is not in never falling, but in getting up every time we do. Don't worry about getting knocked down. Just try to reduce the time that you stay there. Falling is good for you. Learning to accept rejection and to face getting knocked down isn't just about growing a tough skin. Getting knocked down also makes you stronger and better. It's good for you. One of my earliest introductions to this lesson was on the ski slopes. My dad taught me to snow ski when I was six years old. By the time I was eight, I was skiing on my own. Once at the end of a full ski day, I ran up to my dad with a huge smile and proudly announced, Dad, Dad, I skied by myself all day long and didn't fall down once. He looked at me flatly and said, Well, then you didn't get any better. What? That wasn't the response I was expecting and hoping for. Seeing the bewildered look on my face, my dad elaborated, Look, if you're going to get better, you have to push yourself. If you push yourself, you're going to fall. If you're not falling, you're not pushing. Falling is part of getting better. I owe much of my success to my dad and this philosophy. He taught me that it was not only okay to fail, but that it was an important part of the process. It was proof you were stretching and growing past your previous limits. It was a confirmation that you were improving. As a result, I never saw setbacks, obstacles, rejection, or even pain as things to avoid. Rather, they were improvement markers on the journey towards greatness. They were events to be appreciated, even celebrated. The track ahead. The entrepreneur roller coaster starts the way many rides do, with great excitement and expectation. You're so positive, so excited, so pumped. You check your shoulder harness, you look around at your friends and family with a big smile, and with a jolt, the ride begins. For the first few moments, the ride is filled with anticipation. You climb steadily higher and higher. Foot by foot, you build your potential. And with each passing moment, your view expands. You see farther and farther your future laid out before you as you reach the summit of your first peak. And then the bottom falls out. 
what was once a slow, steady, predictable track turns into a deadly plummet. The first unexpected turn smashes your head against the seat back. You find yourself suddenly turned upside down and feel your stomach churn. Up ahead, you see a corkscrew and a sharp turn, and you wonder if you can even survive this ride, much less enjoy it or ever want to do it again. You wish you had never stepped onto the ride at all. And then it gets worse. Without warning, the ride goes dark. Now you can't even anticipate the changes coming at you. You're smashed and buffeted, jerked from side to side, flipped over without warning. Every pitfall is a shock. Then, just when you think you can't take it anymore, the car slows, you jerk against your shoulder harness, and you emerge into the sunlight. The ride completed. Your fear is replaced with a flood of exhilaration. You did it. The Entrepreneur Roller Coaster is no easy ride. It is both thrilling and scary as hell. To ride it successfully is one of the greatest feelings you will ever experience in life. But along the way, you'll have to battle fear, uncertainty, discouragement, and disapproval, and a lot more. You'll be tempted to quit. Don't, because there's only one thing certain on the ride: you can't get to the end if you quit. When people dislike you, know that it means you're on the right track. When you get knocked down, know that it's gonna pass. That it's gonna make you stronger. When they laugh, laugh along with them. After all, they're not likely to cry along with you. Embrace your inner freak. Ignore the crabs. Find your own success and brave the dark days, knowing that the few good days are really, really good. Do this, and you'll be really glad you decided to step onto the track and take the ride. Is your shoulder harness locked right? Are you ready to be thrashed about? I hope so, because we're headed for the first summit. Chapter 3: Fuel for the motor. Shut your mouth and other sales essentials. Put that coffee down. Coffee is for closers only. Oh, have I got your attention now? Good. That's from Glen Gary, Glen Ross, 1992. Every day there are a million things you could spend your time doing to keep the ride in motion and your business moving, from shipping, quality control, vendor selection to arranging financing. Invoicing and paying the bills. There's an endless stream, a raging torrent, really, of things to do, contemplate, and to decide. Each one feels critical. Each one screams for your attention. Each one can seem as urgent as the next. When you look at it all, it seems daunting and overwhelming, a blur of scenery as you whiz past. Your shoulder harness secured. Your mind unable to focus on any one thing. One of the scariest parts of this ride is deciding where to spend your precious time and attention. This is no false threat. Wasting too much time on things that don't matter and neglecting the things that do will send your cart hurtling off the tracks and headed nose first to the ground below. A short ride on an even shorter track. But how do you decide where to spend your time? Chapter 5: Riding in the front seat. Leadership: Stepping up without screwing up. Leadership is the ability to get extraordinary achievement from ordinary people. Brian Tracy. Have you ever flown into Las Vegas? I think the first time is the same for everyone. The plane begins to make its initial descent, and you look out the window, expecting neon lights, exotic buildings, and people dangling from the sky on streams of Cirque du Soleil fabric. Instead, you see nothing but miles upon miles of rows upon rows of houses, all in various shades of desert brown, and each with a crystal blue swimming pool. All of a sudden, it hits you: people live here. On a recent trip, as my plane banked for the final descent to the airport, I was about to get a new perspective on those thousands of homes. 
I was in town to have lunch with the CEO of a multi-billion dollar company that had built entire cities just like the one I saw from the sky. I had been looking forward to meeting with this man for a while. As far as I was concerned, he was a success rock star. At the time of our lunch, his company had 16,000 employees and was growing at a breakneck speed. They were building 200 homes a day. Can you imagine that? Give it a try. Picture for a moment one of those large, perfectly planned suburban home developments, an idyllic neighborhood where the cul-de-sacs are plentiful and the color-coordinated rooftops stretch endlessly in every direction. Got that image in your head? Now imagine building that in just 24 hours. It would be like mobilizing a small army every single day. As the CEO ordered his lunch, I tried to fathom being at the helm of that kind of growth. I rolled a few of the variables around in my head. The people he had to manage, the surveying and permitting, the multitude of complexities of timelines, the massive capital required. I thought about the challenges, the problems, and the liabilities, not to mention the volatile nature of the new construction market. My mind was spinning just thinking about everything required to keep a company growing at that pace. There were just so many things that could go wrong, so many constraints. As I expressed this to the home development rock star, though, he seemed unfazed, dismissive even. In his mind, there was only one factor limiting his company's growth. Him. He said the only constraint of a company's growth and potential is the owner's ambition, I am the constraint. The market, the opportunity, everything is there. It's up to me to set the pace, clear the obstacles, get the resources, and create the conversations to grow the company faster. As CEO, he continued, the most important thing I manage is myself. Do that right and everything else falls into place. And just to be clear, falling into place for this guy meant a billion dollars a year. That single conversation forever changed the way I saw Las Vegas, and it forever changed the way I see myself as a leader. Every time I feel that descent into the Las Vegas airport, I look out the window and the sprawling city below. For me, it's no longer a meaningless sea of desert-landscaped homes. It's the expression of a leader's ambition. And I remind myself, as the leader, I am my only constraint. Doing what that CEO did for a company that size takes some serious leadership. But what he said of his organization and its limitations isn't just true of billion-dollar companies. It's true of any company, yours included. The number one bottleneck or constraint to the growth of any organization is the leader. It's true every time. There are no exceptions. Your leadership ability is the major limit to what you can achieve in business. It's that skill that determines if you can turn this roller coaster into a rocket ship to the moon. This chapter is about the essentials you need in order to make sure that the sky, not your leadership, is the limit. The choice. Imagine for a moment that one afternoon before closing up shop for the day, you find a golden lantern lying on the middle of your conference room table. Just go with me here. Curiosity overwhelms you. After looking over your shoulder to make sure no one else is in the office, because they certainly would call you crazy, you pick up the lantern and wipe away a thin layer of dust to get a better look. You know where this is going, right? Immediately, the lantern begins to rumble and out pops a big blue brawny genie, like in Disney's Aladdin. Heck, let's say this genie is voiced over by Robin Williams, too. Why not? Unfortunately, this genie has his loincloth in a bunch and is not really in the mood for the standard three wishes nonsense. Instead, he promises to grant you instant best-in-your-industry status in just one category. Which one would you choose? For the record, this isn't one of those there are no wrong answers kind of questions. There is a wrong answer. So you run through the various options in your head. Here are the options. Best product ever. The highest quality and best product wins, right? Not necessarily. Of all the fancy five-star Michelin-rated restaurants run by celebrity chefs and those promoted wildly on reality TV shows, What's the number one restaurant in the world? Answer, McDonald's. One of the most competitive businesses on the planet is the wine business. 
After all the art, science, label design, heritage, courting of tastemakers and connoisseurs, what's the number one wine in the world? Answer, Franzia. Yes, that stuff that comes in a box. I have watched thousands of entrepreneurs collectively spend millions of hours designing, creating, and perfecting the awesomeness of their products. Unfortunately, I've also watched many of the same entrepreneurs close their doors or file for bankruptcy while their awesome, perfect products line the walls of their garages, collecting dust. Like it or not, and I don't, it's not a whoever has the best product wins kind of world. How about this? Top-notch management. Perhaps you've often thought that if you could just gather the right team, you'd have the competitive edge. But countless dream teams have failed miserably. Companies like Enron, Bear Stearns, WorldCom, Pets.com, Webvan, and eToys assembled some of the most incredibly talented corporate leadership teams in the history of business. All went bust. The movie Ocean's 12 had one of the greatest star-studded casts to ever grace the screen during a single movie, but it grossed less worldwide than the starless My Big Fat Greek Wedding playing at the same time. Other movies like Ishtar, The Green Lantern, The Lone Ranger, and The Thirteenth Warrior also come to mind. Remember the USFL, the United States Football League, and the XFL, Exclusive Football League? Probably not. They lasted three seasons and one season, respectively, even though they were led by and had recruited some of the most notable talent in football history. The 2004 Olympic basketball team was built from the ground up with nothing but NBA stars, dubbed, in fact, the Dream Team. Who could beat a team like that? Lithuania, apparently. The U.S. came in third. Ouch. Assembling a Dream Team is just that, a dream. It's not the real crux of success. The right people focused on the wrong priorities can turn the dream into a nightmare. Just ask Enron. Outrageous margins. Well then, what about the highest margins? Certainly your accountant and CFO would support that wish. Just imagine all that profit. And isn't that the goal of a business? But margins don't matter a bit if the product never sells. 100% of zero is still what? Yep, zero. Now, what about awe-inspiring sales and marketing? Apple was not the first to deliver a mobile digital media player or MP3 player to the market. Not even close. In fact, they were eighth and four years late to the party. Companies like Compaq, Archos, and Creative had MP3 players with larger hard drives, which could hold significantly more than a thousand songs before one of the most brilliant marketers the world's ever known, Steve Jobs, touted and persistently repeated, a thousand songs in your pocket. So who won? Apple. Why? Oh, don't argue that the iPod was a significantly better product. Certainly their brilliant marketing has helped convince us all of that. The reality is Apple won because of their awe-inspiring sales and marketing. When the iPod was announced, the tech tastemakers weren't impressed. Rumors were that Apple would release a revolutionary PDA. Instead, they just unveiled a music player, and sales didn't take off for a long while. The year Apple launched the iPod, 2001, they declined in revenue, going from 30% revenue growth the year previous to negative 33%. The following year, 2002, was also a negative revenue growth year at minus 2%. In 2003, they recovered partially to a positive 18%. It wasn't until 2004, three years after the launch of the iPod, that they got back to 33% growth and then dominated the digital music player market, claiming a 90% market share for hard drive-based players and over 70% of the market for all types of players. What happened to turn the tide those three years? Sales and marketing happened, that's what. When it comes to the entrepreneur roller coaster, there's one critical thing that will keep your ride from coming to a screeching, flaming halt. Like it or not, 
the one thing that matters most in determining whether your business succeeds or fails miserably is sales. Here's how it works. The ultimate success of a product or service is 10% product quality and 90% sales. Nine times out of 10, it's not the best product, management, or margin that determines the leader in an industry. Whether it's clothing, cars, restaurants, CPA firms, real estate agents, lawyers, furniture manufacturers, refrigerators, or fishing tackle, the companies that become the biggest are the ones who market themselves the best and sell the most. I don't necessarily like that fact, and I bet it makes you uneasy too. I believe the quality of a product or service should be what's most important, and it should stand entirely on the value it delivers. But that's just not how it works in reality. So, make the right choice. No need for a genie at all. We live in the real world, where, like it or not, sales is king. The person who knows how to get, keep, and cultivate a customer gets paid the most. Period. It's your fault. Is your company rocking and rolling? Are your sales high and morale higher? Are you dominating your marketplace and leaving others slack-jawed and mystified? Then go ahead, my leader friend. Take a moment to pat yourself on the back and do a little celebration dance. It looks like, at least for now, you're doing a nice job at pushing through your own limitations and, as the leader, you get first dibs on the credit. Feel good? Okay, now stop. Because, yes, while you are to blame when things go right, when they go wrong, it's also your fault. All your fault. As the leader, you ultimately have 100% responsibility for everything. When a widget rolls off the line with a broken thingamajig, it's not the fault of the guy who was texting instead of quality controlling. It's your fault. When a customer is mistreated at a store halfway across the country, don't blame the customer service agent with a bad attitude. You're to blame. Top to bottom, front to back, everything is your fault. After all, when a company gets in trouble, what do they do? They fire the CEO. When a team starts losing, they replace the head coach. When the country's not doing well, they want to oust the president. Sure, when your ship comes in, you're going to win big. But if the ship goes down, you're going down with it, Captain. The math of deception. Knowing that everything hinges on you, there's only one question you should be asking right now. How's my leadership? Let me guess your answer. I gotta say, Darren, it's pretty good. Am I right? Is that your answer? You think you're at least above average. Maybe better? Are you sure? Studies consistently show that we often think we're better at things than we really are. Doctors, pilots, teachers, the vast majority of professionals think they're better than average. Leaders are no different. In fact, 75% of people in leadership positions think they're in the top 10% of the field. Do you see anything wrong with that? The math doesn't work. We can't all be in the top 10%. And to make it worse, if you're like most people, even as you're listening to this, you're still thinking, well, that doesn't apply to me. I'm actually in the top 10%. Trust me, we all need to take a close look at our leadership skills. When I first heard these statistics, I thought the same thing you did. Oh, they're just talking about other people. In fact, in an effort to prove it to myself, I even took my entire team to a leadership seminar. We were having a great year, and I was feeling pretty good about our performance. I wanted to take things up a notch and reward the team at the same time. And although I wouldn't have admitted it then, I wanted to stroke my ego, too. But regardless of motive, we loaded up in a 40-passenger travel bus one Friday afternoon and took off to a beautiful conference center in Santa Barbara, California for a two-day retreat. As part of the first day, the seminar leader guided us through a multiple-choice and short essay exercise that was designed to be a 360-degree review of each member of the team, including me. He gave us an hour, put on some music, and we each sat and anonymously reported on each other's strengths, weaknesses, and personality. 
Oh, I ate it up. I dug right into the exercise, taking care to offer never-before-considered elements of each of my team's strengths and areas of weakness. I was looking forward to both improving the team and earning a few well-earned kudos for my stellar leadership. At the end of the hour, the leader turned off the music, collected the feedback, reassembled it for each member of the team, and excused us to read and process our reviews in private. We would reconvene in an hour to discuss. I found a little nook next to a window overlooking the bluffs and the sea and settled in to gorge myself on an ego buffet. Oh boy, as I worked my way through the first few strongly agree, agree, strongly disagree responses, I could feel my face growing hot and my palms beginning to sweat. The way my team saw me was nothing like I saw myself, nothing at all. Where I thought I was being organized and transparent, they saw me as being too secretive and short-sighted. When I thought I was being inspiring and encouraging, they thought I was being demeaning and a braggart. I picked up the pace a little, quickly scanning each review, looking for a glimmer of confirmation that I was the leader I knew I was, that the first few responses were just a fluke. And there were some parts that were very complimentary, but as each page passed, there was no hiding from the truth. I was not the leader I thought I was. I was flabbergasted. At first, I felt betrayed and questioned the results, but there was no way around it. This was the truth like I'd never been willing to see before. Ironically, it's moments like this when we question our leadership that true leadership emerges. I put the papers down and stared out the window, watching the waves rhythmically touch the shore. Sitting there alone just moments before we were scheduled to return to the group, I knew I had two choices. I could discount the feedback as nonsense and continue to believe what I believed, thereby preserving my ego, or I could take it seriously and make a decision to get better. I have to admit, I was tempted by the first option. My ego and I have been friends for a long time, and it would be inconsiderate of me to just throw him under the bus. But I then realized the truth. I had fallen for the same trap as most other leaders. I believed I was better than I actually was. The only solution, I realized, was to stop believing I was better and simply get better. Your number one job. From the first glow of your computer screen in the morning to the last loose end you tie up before heading home, you need to be selling. You don't get to hide from it. In fact, there's no place to hide. Whether your business has one employee or a thousand, you have to sell. Even if you have a sales force selling your product for you, you're still gonna be selling. Big ideas to partners and the vision to your employees. You're gonna be selling to new recruits, persuading them to join you, banks to back you, vendors to trust you, and the manufacturers that make your product to speed up production and keep up the great work. You're gonna be convincing people to do their best. You'll be asking people to lower their prices. You're going to push, pull, persuade, negotiate, wheel, and deal. You're going to sell all day, every day. That's business. From now on, selling is your number one job, your top priority, the only thing that will give you the speed you need to survive the twists, corkscrews, dives, drops, and inversions all along this ride. Why is it more critical than other business essentials? A few good reasons. Number one, everything starts with sales. Nothing matters until you sell something, nothing. You can vision cast, dream board, draft fancy business plans, meet with consultants, design a nifty logo, get pretty business cards and letterhead made, but there is no business until a sale happens. A sale tells you if you even have a business. A sale starts the entire process and is the first thing every new business needs. Secondly, everything is sustained with sales. It is the lifeblood of the business. Have a problem? Sales will solve most of them. And the most common problem you will run into when it comes to surviving and sustaining your business is, guess what? Yes, sales. Thirdly, 
Everything ends with sales. It doesn't matter how environmentally friendly or socially conscious your product is. It doesn't matter how important your cause or critical your mission or how awesome your culture is. If you don't sell enough, you'll be out of business and fast. There are no bailouts for small businesses or entrepreneurs. There are no safety nets on this ride. Your only insurance policy is to go sell something. If the idea of sales as your top priority every day is making your stomach queasy, then you'll need a spoonful of this medicine. Suck it up and go sell. A lot. Every day. Because this ride runs on sales. This ain't your daddy's leadership. The choice I faced that day is the same one you face now. The truth is, we can all improve our ability to lead. The challenge is that leadership has changed. For a long time, leadership was a pretty static idea. The industrial age taught us that organizations were economic entities or machines for making money. The priorities for leaders in those days were to develop structures, set controls, leverage capital as efficiently as possible, to in effect treat parts of the company, including people, as parts in the machine. This was accomplished through pyramids of people arranged in hierarchies who performed a fairly narrow range of tasks with clear guidelines. As a leader, your job was to pour orders into the top of the pyramid machine and watch the results come out the bottom. And now, forget about it. Things have changed. Not only have the rules of business changed, but also the landscape of who you need to lead is radically different. The millennial generation, those born in the 1980s and 90s, is the largest generation to enter the workforce in human history. Nurtured through a different era, this generation has a completely different value system. They value self-expression, not compliance. They care about independence, not routine. If you're having a hard time motivating and leading millennials, you better figure it out, and quickly. Millennials will soon represent half of the current workforce and by 2020, they'll hold the majority of leadership positions. Like it or not, they're going to play a star role in how the marketplace works in the future. They will make up both your workforce and your competition. Not only is the workforce younger, its gender makeup has shifted. As unemployment figures fluctuate, there are often more women working than men, and the number of stay-at-home dads has doubled to over 20%. This is a massive shift from the previously male-dominated, top-down, rank-and-file, industrial-age corporate system and culture. But wait, there's more. Adding to this new complexity is the fact that by 2050, minorities will make up 55% of the working-age population, making them what? Yeah, majorities. Add it all up, and you'll realize the people you're going to be leading are extremely diverse. Did you know that for the first time in history, we're going to have five generations in the workplace at once? When the millennials occupy the majority of leadership positions, not only will there be two generations following them, but their parents and grandparents will still be working too. How's that for a mind-blowing, nerve-wracking leadership challenge? You can't be an old-school leader in a new-school workplace and expect to thrive. There's no hiding. I have my grandmother to thank for many of my best attributes. You already know that she helped me open up my first bank account, which launched my wealth-building ambitions. She was the first believer in my entrepreneurial dreams by being my first customer, and she and my grandfather financed the cleanup costs without complaint. Any affection I show is a result of the love my grandmother showed me. But perhaps the most visible effect of my grandmother's influence was not on my strength of character, but rather my sense of style. Yes, my grandmother turned me into a fashionista, a bona fide clothes horse. My grandmother had impeccable style and swore by it. Never trust a man with scuffed shoes or a wrinkled shirt, she would tell me. It was not uncommon for us to spend an entire Saturday afternoon wandering the grand hallways of I. Magnon or Neiman Marcus discussing color, cut, and classic fashion. Your clothes are your wrapping, she would say. Everyone treats a beautifully wrapped gift with more care and reverence than one wrapped in a paper bag. It's no wonder, then, that when I began to earn a little extra money in my water filter business, that I headed straight for the mall. 
Nordstrom's, in fact, for scuff-free shoes and enough fine shirts to impress the millions of future clients that were certainly awaiting my arrival. I spent a lot of time at Nordstrom's. I would wander the racks of beautiful men's clothing moving in the same pattern. First the shirts, by brand, then back through, by color. Then the slacks, suits, ties, socks, and wrapping up in the shoe department for the grand finale. I rarely purchased anything, though. I was, after all, in the early stages of my business, and most of my money was being poured back into the business and the costly office I had conveniently located adjacent to the mall. But I loved the dream of the clothes I'd be wearing when I began to dominate the world of water filters. What started as a once-a-week trip soon became twice a week, then three times. Then the only days I wasn't at the mall were on the weekend. What fool faces the masses when he has the flexibility, the luxury, to peruse the best in men's fashion uninterrupted all week long? Truly, truly, this was the kind of life only afforded to the most successful. And while my bank account didn't reflect it yet, it was only a matter of time, I told myself, before I arrived. After all, who is to say that the next superstar water filter salesman to join my team and make me millions in residual income wasn't waiting just on the other side of the designer underwear? So, I was prospecting, right? Late one Tuesday morning, I was well into my Nordstrom routine. I breathed deeply as I took in the familiar sounds of the piano music, the murmur of sales clerks admiring clients, and the occasional overhead paging with the unknown codes to unknown people. Paging Frederick Randall to the men's department, I loved all of it. I had just finished admiring a pair of gray herringbone Zania slacks when I could see, out of the corner of my eye, someone approaching. He was a handsome African-American man about my height in his late 50s. He came right up to me, placed his hand on the back of my arm, and asked, in a voice less friendly than I expected from a Nordstrom associate, can I help you, young man? Taken aback slightly, the salesman was more aggressive than I was accustomed to, I looked more closely at him. I wasn't sure if I wanted his help. His style seemed a bit too gruff for my taste, and I didn't trust his judgment. He wore a one-tone dark navy ensemble that looked more like a jumpsuit than a business suit. I looked to the shiny gold name badge clipped to his pocket, Wayne. No thank you, Wayne. I'm just looking. I'm sorry, son, but you're going to have to come with me. Wayne escorted me away from the racks of clothing out onto the shiny tiled walkway and straight out the door to the parking garage. It turns out that the overhead page that I had heard earlier wasn't really a page for Frederick Randall. It was a shoplifter security alert, a.k.a. me. And Wayne was not a sales clerk. He was a mall cop. My frequent leisurely trips to Nordstrom's were about to become forcibly a lot less frequent. It has come to our attention that you spend a lot of time here. Too much time, Wayne said, his voice echoing in the nearly empty parking garage. You loiter in the men's department and never purchase. To us, this either means you are a shoplifter or casing the joint for something bigger. We kindly ask that you not return. I stared at him blankly, still in shock. Wayne paused for a moment as if realizing I wasn't much of a threat, and then continued in a less scripted tone. Don't you have something better to do with your time, man? You're dressed nice enough. Shouldn't you be out lawyering or sitting in an office or selling something, not wandering around a mall? My brain was still locked up. I couldn't say a word. Wayne shook his head and muttered something like, good for nothing kids these days and nothing better to do as he headed back into the store where I was no longer welcome. I stood there for a moment, watching the glass door with the worn gold handle close behind him, then slowly walked to my car. As I started to drive away from the mall for the last time that year, I realized that even though I had declined his initial offer for assistance, Wayne really had helped me. I did have better things to do, more important things than mall lurking, I had been hiding in Nordstrom's to avoid doing them. I had been avoiding sales. I was dreaming of sales and everything that came with them, but I wasn't doing any actual selling. If I wanted to dominate water filters, I was going to have to go sell some water filters. 
That was the day my roller coaster ride started to pick up speed. Trust me when I say I know sales can be scary. I hid amongst the mannequins and mirrors in a department store for weeks to evade the pain and struggle of selling. Just like many budding entrepreneurs, I worked to avoid the anxiety associated with prospecting, the unique sting of rejection, and the fear of making a fool of myself. I disguised my procrastination as productivity and used all the classic tricks of the trade to escape the inevitable truth. My business was nothing until I sold something. Learn from my early mistake and don't hide from the pain and emotional toil that accompanies selling. Every day, millions of businesses fail because their owners are hiding somewhere hiding behind to-do lists, incessant email checking, social media monitoring, mindless meetings, or unnecessary paperwork. It's time to quit hiding and start selling. Every single morning we awake, the same truth hangs over our heads as real, as fresh, and as urgent as the day before. Wayne, help me. Now it's my turn to help you. Shine whatever shoes you've got, iron your shirt, and head straight out the door, it's time to go sell something. Enter the 21st century leader. Leader used to be synonymous with boss or manager, but not anymore. A boss leads by authority, fear, and command. You'll do it because I said so. I'm the boss. Everyone hates bosses. Don't be a boss. And managers? They try to incentivize with brass rings, Starbucks gift cards, and the chance to ring the bell. If you do what I say, I'll give you this. Managers are weenies. Don't be a manager. So what should you be? This is clearly not your daddy's leadership. But unfortunately, that's all most of us know. Leadership to us is what we saw while growing up. Today, we are mindlessly repeating the patterns and behaviors of models we experienced. We are using 20th century leadership skills to try and lead in the 21st century, and we wonder why it's not working. So, what do you do? You change. You adapt. You become something new. You become a 21st century leader. 21st century leaders aren't bosses. They're not managers. They're not relics from a bygone era. They're leaders in the true sense of the word because they understand and embody the four things that set all great leaders apart. You already know how to sell. Trust me, you know how to sell. You've been doing it your whole life. We all have. Selling is one of the first skills we learn as humans. Before we can even speak, we learn that we can influence our parents through the appropriate cry. It's no small feat to persuade a sleep-deprived parent to rise from slumber, stumble through the nursery, and retrieve a fallen pacifier or snuggle bear at 3 o'clock every morning. Baby's got skills, and that baby was you. Crying is one of the first sales tactics we learn to get people to do what we want. Unfortunately, some people stick solely to that strategy into adulthood. As children grow, they get even better at sales. Have you ever taken a toddler to a grocery store? A child who wants an ice cream or a toy sitting on the store shelf will use every selling skill in the book with relentless persistence. Kids are masters of sales. They know how to overcome objections, push through stall tactics, handle rejection, not take no for an answer, and continue to ask for the order until the deal is sealed, or until they have to be removed by force. Think back to the letters you wrote to Santa at Christmas, or to the nights when you really wanted to stay out past your curfew. It may have been several decades ago, but you were once a child with the same natural knack for persuasion. We all sell, all day, every day. I always have to laugh a little when someone says, oh, I'm not a salesperson. Then they launch into a 10-minute detailed sales presentation complete with bullet points and case studies selling me on the fact that they're no good at selling. We all make dozens of sales presentations every day. We sell a friend to go see a particular movie or try a new restaurant. We sell why we're late for an event or can't make a party. We even sell ourselves on why we should skip a workout or buy something we don't need. And if you're a parent, you're working overtime, refining and mastering your selling skills. You're constantly selling your kids on something, 
eat your vegetables, use your words, don't hurl yourself on the back of the couch, texting and driving will kill you. If you're a parent, your sales skills are already in heavy use. Don't fool yourself. Everyone sells, even you. So grab your headband and your water bottle. We're about to do some P90X on your sales muscles. Number one, leaders set the pace. Here's a secret. People don't go as fast as they can. They don't work as hard as they can either. They aren't as disciplined as possible. They aren't as positive-minded or enthusiastic as they can be. They're only as fast and disciplined and positive as you are. As the leader, you set the pace. You create the standards. It doesn't matter if you're leading salespeople, engineers, or creatives. They will only be as disciplined, driven, focused, and consistent as the person leading them. The speed, quality, and culture of the pack are determined by the leader. That means the most important but also the most underused and violated principle of leadership is lead by example. Here's how to set a good example. Lead from the front. In 1944, the Allied generals gathered to discuss their battle plans for the D-Day invasion of Normandy. After listening to how each general was going to send his soldiers into battle, an angered Dwight D. Eisenhower, the supreme commander, slammed his fist down, stood up, and placed a piece of string in the middle of the table. Gentlemen, he said, do you see this string? This string is like an army. Push it from behind, and it doubles up on itself. You get nowhere. To drive it forward, you have to pull it from the front, and it will follow you in perfect order. We should have learned this valuable lesson in preschool. Do you remember preschool? Those early education years are when we learn the basic skills of sharing, sitting still for more than a minute, and the classic, our hands are not for hitting. It is also where we learn to walk in a straight line. I can still hear sweet Miss Morrow's voice as she called, All right, boys and girls, let's line up. She would stand at the classroom door, and we'd fall into line behind her. She'd grab the tiny palm of a student, and we would all do the same. Mrs. Morrow would open up the classroom door and fearlessly guide us single file through the hallways to our destination. Did Mrs. Morrow stand behind us and shout, go? No. Did she walk along beside us to try to manage our every move? No. She walked in front, leading the way, and at every turn she called to us, follow me. Certainly, the people in your organization are not preschoolers, even if sometimes it seems like they would benefit from a nap. But the leadership principle remains the same. If you want to move your organization forward, you can't just give a speech and say, go. You only need to say, follow me, and make your action your instruction. Do it first. Before I ever ask someone to do or be anything, I think of Mahatma Gandhi and the story of the little boy and sweets. It's such a great example to live up to, and it delivers an invaluable lesson on the character of leadership. Coming to see Gandhi, a woman waited in line for more than half a day with her son at her side in order to have an audience with him. When at last it was her turn to speak to him, the woman said, Mahatma, please tell my son he must stop eating sweets. It's ruining his health and his teeth. It affects his mood. Every time he has sweets, I see the change in him, and there's nothing I can do to stop him from eating more and more. He's a good boy, but when it comes to sweets, he becomes a liar and a thief and a cheat, and I'm afraid it will ruin his life. Please, Mahatma, tell him to stop. Gandhi looked at the boy for a long moment as he cowered there, trying to hide in his mother's sorry. Finally, Gandhi broke the silence and said, Come back to me in two weeks' time. Confused and a bit disappointed that he could not simply tell her son to stop eating sugar, the mother left with her son. Two weeks later, the woman returned with her child and once again waited in line for hours before finally it was her turn to see the master. Mahatma, said the mother, we have returned. We came to you for help with this boy in eating sweets, and you asked us to come back after two weeks. Yes, of course, I remember, said Gandhi. Come here, child. He motioned the boy forward. The boy, at the urging and prodding of his mother, disentangled himself from her sari and stepped up to Gandhi, who reached out, put his hand on the boy's shoulders, and pulled him closer. He looked at the boy squarely in the eye and said firmly, Don't eat sweets, then released him. That's it, said the mother. 
That's all you're going to say? She was flabbergasted. Why didn't you just tell him that two weeks ago? Because, replied Gandhi, two weeks ago, I was still eating sweets myself. I could not ask him to stop eating sweets so long as I had not stopped either. If you really want to have leadership influence, you have no choice but, as Gandhi, to be the change you want to see in others. Leadership in the 21st century is less about the words that come out of you and more about what exists within you. Is there a behavior that is rotting the teeth of your organization and ruining its health? If so, you'll need to be the first one to throw those sweets away. Monkey see, monkey do. A mother of six who I know is the most affectionate, affirming woman I have ever met. Her children are the purpose of her life. For decades, she poured incredible amounts of love and positive feedback into those kids. Even now that many of them are in their 40s, she relentlessly praises and applauds them, still telling them to this day how special, talented, capable, and beautiful they are. Yet now, as adults, they all suffer from severe low self-esteem. Each one of them lacks confidence. They even admit to thinking that they are ugly. How can this be? No one was ever loved and encouraged more than those six people. Their mother told them so often. Why didn't they listen? The answer is that kids, like most people, don't really listen. They watch. If you watch their mother, as I have, you'd notice that every time she looks into a mirror, she grimaces and comments on how ugly she is. Every time she sees a photograph of herself, she winces and points out how unattractive she looks. When encouraged by a friend to try something new or do something adventurous, she's quick to say that she could never do such a thing. That's for other people, she says. Those six kids didn't listen to what their mother said. They watched what she did and internalized how she felt about herself. When she looked in the mirror and winced, they thought, if she thinks she's ugly and I look like her, I must be ugly too. When she refused to do something because she didn't believe she could, they thought, if she couldn't do it, this woman who was their idol, their rock, their mother, then there's no way such a thing would be possible for me. Here's how this works. When we were children, we quickly learned to tune out the voices of our parents and other authority figures. We did that quite consciously. It's how we started claiming our own identity. But unconsciously, we never stopped watching. This phenomenon is part of our evolution. Thousands of years ago, when we were still living in caves and carrying around cattle bones as clubs, a newborn needed to be accepted by the tribe or it was left behind to die. Over time, nature selected the ones who could mirror those around them to gain acceptance. We developed what neuroscientists call mirror neurons. You can see them in action when you take a picture of someone smiling and you find yourself automatically smiling too. Your mirror neurons did that. These mirror neurons are always working below the level of your consciousness. It's why people will eventually model and match your behavior, particularly the behavior of the one deemed leader. I see this mirroring phenomenon played out in many large organizations I speak to. If the leaders of one company dress professionally and wear custom-made suits, lo and behold, the entire auditorium of their people are dressed to the nines in suits. Another organization's leaders in the same industry might wear ripped designer jeans, t-shirts, and dog tags, and guess what? The whole audience looks like they're clones. I'd bet most of the people in those organizations didn't dress like that before they joined, but over time, they started unconsciously emulating adapting to, and mirroring their leaders. Your teams will do the same, not just in dress, but in attitude, behavior, and work ethic. You are always on stage. So what's the overarching lesson here? Who you are, how you show up, how you act, live, and represent yourself is your greatest source of influence, and your people will, without even knowing it, mirror your lead. You are on stage at all times. Every room you enter, every conversation you engage in, everywhere you are, you are being watched by those around you. Think about the interactions you've had in the past few days. 
Did you show up promptly, enthusiastically, and joyfully? Were you an example of your best self? Were people uplifted by your presence, conversation, observations, and encouragement? Or were you complaining, joining the gossip, and perpetuating the defeatist dialogue? Whatever your example, rest assured, you got matching results, even if you didn't notice. Every action, comment, and reaction you put out there is training your team. They're simply reflecting what you project. And if you want to change the reflection, you have to change the projection. You have to lead by example. Building your sales muscles. Nine steps. Just because everyone sells doesn't mean we don't need to get better at it. In a world awash in sales solicitations, your prospects are far savvier than they used to be. Consumers have become very good at avoiding marketing and advertising. They're skipping commercials, turning a blind eye to website banners, and passing right by billboards without even seeing them. Our culture has become so overwhelmed by commercial sales messages that we've become immune to most of them. And in today's age, you are not competing only with competitors. You are competing with prospects, friends, and their adorable baby pictures. Now more than ever, the fate of your business, your dreams, and your future hinges on your ability to sell better than your competition. Otherwise, your roller coaster ride is going to come to a screeching, whiplash-inducing halt. The rest of this chapter is dedicated to equipping you with the standout sales strategies that, when used, will break any previous roller coaster speed records. So, put that coffee down and let's get started. Number two, leaders do what's unpopular. It must be nice to be in charge. How many times have you heard that statement? How many times have you said that statement or wished you were in charge? Now you are. Once you're really the leader, though, you quickly discover that leadership isn't always that nice. It's not easy or fun. It's hard work, and not just hard in the long-demanding-hours sense, though the hours are long and demanding, but emotionally hard. In July of 2008, Starbucks CEO Howard Schultz agonized over the decision to lay off thousands of employees and close 600 stores, 70% of which had only been built and opened in the past few years. He calls it the most painful day in his professional life. The decision to close that many stores was tough, he said, but it wasn't stores, it was people. He recalled the moment he made the announcement to his headquarters team. It was a very emotional moment for me where I couldn't hold myself together. I was looking at people whom I'd known for 10 to 15 years who I was now asking to leave. It was a heartbreak. While he knew it would make him very unpopular to thousands of people, particularly to those people whose lives would immediately change based on his decision, he also knew it was the right decision and one he had to make to save the company and its future. He said, I was faced with the burden and the responsibility of saving the company. In order to preserve and ultimately enhance the company, I had to make emotional and highly charged, unpopular, decisions that in the short term were really going to fracture the lives of people. Like Schultz, you're going to have to make tough calls too. You might have to make the tough decision to abandon a big marketing and distribution channel like Michael Dell did when he decided to pull out of Walmart and all retail to focus his company on its direct-to-consumer model. It was a decision that revolutionized the computer sales industry back in 1993. You might have to shut down an existing profit center like former CEO of McDonald's Jim Skinner did when he sold off controlling interest in the Chipotle brand and all other non-McDonald's businesses in 2006 in order to, as he put it, remove distractions and get back to basics. Profit more than doubled under Skinner's reign as leader. You might need to step in and terminate entire product lines as Steve Jobs did when he returned to lead a nearly bankrupt Apple in 1997. Those and other difficult decisions propelled the company to ultimately being deemed the world's most valuable brand. Rest assured, if your name badge is going to say leader, 
you will be called to ruffle feathers, ride roughshod over poor performance, fire nice people, kill sacred cows, terminate pet projects, and veto the Democratic vote, all of which will likely make you very unpopular. But the aim of the leader is not to be liked, it's to lead to do the right thing, and more often than we like, the right thing is not the popular thing. Are you willing to make the difficult choices, to do what's unpopular? It's not easy, but remember this, when people are calling you out and calling you names, they're really just calling you a leader. Number one, don't kill your customers. After I started my real estate business, I would occasionally meet with a man who became an unofficial mentor to me in the industry. I liked his style, and I admired how easy he made it all look, as if buying a multi-million dollar home was the most obvious 